Friends, I love the story of Jonah the prophet. It's my favorite book in the entire Old Testament. I think it's a very amusing, very entertaining book. And yet it has a serious message. But the Jews placed this story not among their historical books of the Bible, but in the midst of the Book of the Twelve, that is that collection of twelve minor prophets. But unlike other prophetic books, which are collections of messages God gave the prophet to proclaim, Jonah is the story of a prophet. There are very few, there's really only one prophetic speech in the entire book, and it's very short. And whereas other prophets of ancient Israel are examples of the obedience of faith, Jonah is the story of a disobedient prophet. And finally, while God usually sends prophets to address God's chosen people, ancient Israelites, in this case, God commands Jonah to travel to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, to address foreigners, in fact, their foreign enemies. Now, what do we know about the figure of Jonah the prophet from elsewhere in Scripture? It's likely that we are intended to already know that Jonah, according to the book of 2 Kings, is the son of Amittai, an 8th century prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. At this point in Israel's history, the United Kingdom had dissolved and they had 10 tribes in the north called Israel, two tribes in the south called Judah. So Jonah was active in the 8th century in the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of King Jeroboam II. Now, Jonah is portrayed in 2 Kings as a nationalistic prophet who forecast that King Jeroboam would have military success and enlarge Israel's borders. Old Testament scholar Douglas Stewart describes Jonah as an ardent nationalist, pro-Israel, anti-foreign, at least anti-Assyrian. Now, Jonah's words proved true, but those military gains he forecast were short-lived. While prophets from the southern kingdom of Judah, Hosea and Amos, severely rebuked the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century also for their social injustices and their unfaithfulness to God, we hear only words promising military success from Jonah in the book of 2 Kings. This means if the original readers of the story of the prophet Jonah were from the southern kingdom of Judah, as we think they were, they would have been very wary of this northern prophet. During Jonah's day in the 8th century before Christ, Assyria, ancient Iraq, was the great superpower, and Israel was one of its subservient vassals, paying annual tribute. Now, if Jonah was written later than 722 BC, then its readers would already know that the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes which had revolted, suffered the response of the Assyrians as they invaded and destroyed it forever as a nation-state. So Nancy Swearingen today is going to read the first part of the story of Jonah, found in chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 2. Then she's going to pick up with verse 10 of chapter 2 and read through chapter 3, verse 2. The one thing that she's not going to read in her um, reading is most of the prayer 
Jonah prayed while in the belly of the fish. So let's hear that important story. So friends, Jonah was instructed to travel 350 miles northeast overland to go to ancient Iraq, to Nineveh, and deliver God's word of judgment against it. Instead, he went west to Joppa on the Mediterranean to that port and paid passage on a ship that was heading west toward Tarshish, likely in southern Spain. Why wasn't Jonah willing to obey God's command? Why wasn't Jonah willing to be the first Hebrew prophet to directly address a foreign power? Others had written about foreign powers, but we don't know that they addressed them in person. Well, I think Jonah had two reasons that kept him from obeying God's command. Hatred of the Assyrians is the first reason. They are the sworn enemy of the Hebrew people. They are the superpower which will soon destroy the kingdom in which Jonah lives, the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes, and wipe it off the map. And second, Jonah was afraid of these cruel people. French scholar Jacques Ellul explains the people to whom Jonah was to preach, the Assyrians, was the most cruel people of antiquity. It was the people which scorched its enemies alive to decorate its walls and pyramids with their skin. Now, once Jonah's voyage west begins on the Mediterranean, God pursues Jonah by sending a violent storm. And in time, the, the non-Jews on board realize that someone has angered their respective God, and, and they figure it's Jonah, and he honestly admits his guilt and in the process bears witness to the God of Israel who created and governed all things. So Jonah then, in a sort of a noble act, instructed the soldiers to throw him overboard, which they did reluctantly to uh, seek calmer seas. Now he thought undoubtedly, Jonah did, that he was about to meet his death, but instead God mercifully rescued him, not with a Coast Guard vessel, but with a giant fish which swallowed him. Jonah gave thanks to God for preserving his life inside the fish. Now, we didn't read the whole prayer, but he has a prayer of thanksgiving. So just to review, Jonah disobeys God's direct command, and yet God mercifully intervenes to rescue him from drowning in the Mediterranean. And after spending three days in the fish's belly and much time in prayer, as Nancy just read, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out on dry land. Round two, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. I can't help but laugh when I hear those words. Okay, so I'm going to pick up with the story now in chapter 3, verse 3 of the prophet Jonah. Hear the word of God. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city. A three days walk across, Jonah began to go into the city, and as he went, he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown, that is destroyed. So this is a word of judgment he's, he's bringing. 
And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock, shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. That's a very surprising turn of events. The people, these pagans, are repenting. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they changed from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm which attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And Jonah replied, yes, angry enough to die. And then the Lord said, You are concerned about the bush for which you did not, did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? Question mark. And that's the way the book ends. Well, this time, Jonah reluctantly traveled all the way to the large city of Nineveh and began to proclaim God's message of impending judgment and destruction. Now, Jonah would like nothing better than having a ringside seat to watch the almighty nuke Nineveh. Miraculously, though, the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast. And everyone, great and small, we're told, put on sackcloth as a sign of penitence and mourning. Even the king of this evil empire covered himself with sackcloth, 
sat in ashes and cried out for mercy in hopes God might turn from God's fierce anger. So in response then to the people's penitence, surprising penitence, our gracious God calls off the announced destruction of the city. God reveals God's wide mercy, our creator's amazing grace. In response though, like a spoiled child, Jonah is petulant and angry. He says in disgust, it was because he already knew God was gracious and merciful and slow to anger and so forth, that he didn't obey God's command in the first place. You know, I already knew that. I knew you'd relent. So why was it worth coming all this way just to see them repent? Who cares about them? So the city of Nineveh is not nuked. Jonah sulks on its outskirts. He pouts. He pouts. Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Sort of like the character in Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant, Jonah, who has just received God's grace and mercy after being thrown overboard in the ship on the Mediterranean, now he wants to deny that same grace and mercy to others who he thinks don't deserve it. He's just confessed God's gracious and merciful, but now wants God to withhold that mercy from his Assyrian enemies. So as an object lesson for Jonah, God appoints a bush to grow rapidly, like the story of Jack and the Beanstalk, in order to save Jonah from heat stroke in that arid climate. And Jonah was exceedingly pleased about the bush. <laughs> this is how the text reads at that point. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm <laughs> dun, 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 that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. And the book then ends with a final question God puts to Jonah, which rings in our ears as we finish the story. The Lord replied to Jonah, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 human beings who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? So friends, what is the central truth, the central message of the story of Jonah? The details of the story are very entertaining and humorous, but the basic message is deadly serious. The story was written to remind and correct and rebuke the Hebrew people uh, and each of us and to remind us of God's wide mercy, God's amazing grace, not only for the covenant people, but for all people, including our enemies. And it's supposed to remind us of our creator's concern for the environment as well. Now, friends, with good reason, John 3.16 is perhaps the most loved verse in the entire Bible. And you know it. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Well, no Old Testament text speaks of God's loving desire to redeem all people as clearly as does that verse the book of Jonah may be the nearest equivalent in the Hebrew Bible, at least one of the most equivalent verses or teachings. The book of Jonah was written to remind the chosen people that they were chosen not only for salvation, to receive salvation themselves, 
but for service. That means they were to spread that message to others. And this means the worldwide mission of the Christian church today is something we inherited actually from ancient Israel. God initially called the Israelites just before giving them the Ten Commandments to mediate the love and knowledge of God to Gentile nations when he told Moses and the people, you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. A priest's job, friend, is to mediate the love and knowledge of God to the people. And in this case, they were then to announce that um, God would, they were being told that God would use them to spread the good news of our Creator's deep love and concern for all peoples, something they didn't really live into on a consistent basis. And some centuries later, the prophet Isaiah, as we heard earlier in our call to worship, told the Israelites following their exile in Babylon, I will give you as a light to the nations, that means the non-Jewish nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And finally, in today's assurance of forgiveness, Peter spoke about our Christian identity as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that we may proclaim the mighty acts of Christ. Now, numerous times, friends, in his public ministry, Jesus affirmed God's desire to redeem all humankind, not only the Jewish chosen people, but all people. And Jesus himself horrified many religious Jews by welcoming and spending time with social and religious outcasts and with Gentiles as well. When people objected to that conduct, Jesus responded, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The risen Christ, as you know as well, commissioned his followers to make disciples of all nations, literally all ethnic groups. And so Jesus wanted to reach all peoples, both Jews and Gentiles, with the message that the one true God loves all people and wishes to redeem all people and calls all people to change direction and follow him. Friends, like the original readers of the story of Jonah, God asks us, who are the individuals, the people groups, and the nations we believe are beyond the bounds of God's wide mercy and Christ's amazing grace? The truth is, as Jonah discovered, there are no boundaries too wide or walls too thick that the love of the triune God cannot penetrate. We are called to spread the message of, of God's love for all people in Christ Jesus. Now, an obvious question some might have is, well, when it comes to God's worldwide mission, certainly the triune God doesn't need me. Okay, granted, God has great power to bring to fruition God's redeeming plan. But God, in the mystery of the will of God, has chosen to use us, just as God chose to use those who preceded us in the faith, not only for salvation, but for service as well. And though like ancient Israel, we too are sinful people, God desires to use each of us to spread the news of God's love and grace for us in Christ to all peoples and nations. So while God may not need us, God wills to use us to fulfill his saving plan. Let us pray. 
gracious and loving God whose mercy is wide and whose grace is amazing. We thank you, O God, for the story of the prophet Jonah and for your message to him that no one is beyond your love and mercy and your, your wish to redeem. And so remind us that you call all people to repentance and personal faith in yourself through Christ, whether we feel such people deserve it or not. And remind us that you call each of us to Christian service as well as salvation. So give us a passion and a deep desire to bear witness to you and to your love for us in Christ Jesus with both our words and our works. Through Christ, the risen Lord, we pray. Amen.